This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, coming to you from Philadelphia. How do workers in the gig economy make the important decisions like how many hours to work in a week or which days to work? Those questions are important for that worker, but also for the company as well. Having a better understanding of these types of questions can help companies with their scheduling, but also with types, uh, what types of benefits to offer and be able to provide other incentives. A new report from here at the Wharton School takes a deeper dive into these decisions and their impact. Gad Elon is a professor of operations, information, and decisions, as well as director of the management and technology program here at the Wharton School, and he is the lead on this research, and he joins me here in studio. Greg, great, Gad, great seeing you again. Hi, great to be here, Dan. Thank you. I guess let's dig first into the research, uh, how you went about it, and, and why it was such an important area for you to look at. It's a great question. I think what we see overall is that if you look at the, the new type of economy, there is a whole new economy out there people call the gig economy. Some people refer to the sharing economy, gig economy. It's it's basically the idea that we the old economy was of a, a one of freelancing. You had people who have full-time jobs, free, uh, but did freelancing once in a while. There are more and more opportunities now through these new platforms for people to engage in freelancer work at every type of scale. So they can do it once a day, once a week. They can do it almost as a full-time job, but then continuously shifting between, let's say, working for a few hours for Uber, then switching for TaskRabbit, then doing maybe a few hours of GrabHab or, or Postmates. And the question for us, that economy is going to be around $2.7 trillion by... 2025, do we know how these employees actually behave? Do we know how they behave? Because really the main question here is there is a lot more flexibility on the firm side, right? I mean, I think always we wanted to have a situation where the firm can match exactly supply and demand, and they indeed can do that. The only issue now is that the same workers now can choose continuously where they want to work. The key question we wanted to answer is really fundamentally understand how do they make decisions when the decisions they make now are basically seconds, minutes, days, hours, rather than I need to decide where I'm going to work next year. And realistically, the companies like having that flexibility also because it allows them to have more workers working maybe fewer hours, and it protects them having to provide insurance, higher rates of pay. So that was the original or one of the original intents of a lot of these gig economy companies coming on board. Exactly. That allows Uber to be five times bigger than any firm, any car firm, like people compared to BMW, let's say, without having a single car. Right. right? I mean, and so you have no uh, asset on your balance sheet, but you operate at the valuation of $120 billion. We're joined by Gad Alon of the Wharton School. Here in our studios, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So when you look at these two sides, workers and, and companies right now, which side do you think then has the greatest level of angst in, in in this whole scenario because of the fact that the workers are obviously making their decisions, but obviously the company is trying to make their decisions as well? I would say both sides. I mean, I think 
the stakes are just vastly different, right? I mean, so if you look at the firm like Uber um, or, or Lyft, the big question for them, this is a situation where since drivers can switch continuously between firms, right. there is a deep competition for what we call a land grab, right? I mean, you see Uber leaving China when they realize that Didi, that's the main player in China, yeah. is going yeah. to outplay them. You see them the same, they, they do it in, in Indonesia or in, in Malaysia. And you see in the U.S., some cities, Lyft will be competitive and some la- uh, cities not so much. So there is a lot of angst in that, primarily because there is a lot of VC money poured into that. Sure. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the drivers. Drivers at the same time, for many of them, that's their livelihood. Right, so so they are, are trying to make the decision knowing that looking 15 years forward, 20 years forward, you mentioned in, in your, in your uh, initial uh, comments here that uh, they're thinking about co- trying to do experiments on self-driving cars. Yeah. Many of these drivers know that driving is maybe going to be to end in 20 years. Right. So there is a lot and, – and also there is a lot of uncertainty if a driver – I, I tend to speak with drivers now and yeah. probably – I mean, continuously asking them how long they've been working, what they've been doing, like probably many, many other people. And you'll find many Uber drivers say, I've been spending three hours at the airport. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty on the exact earning because there is not, we don't have the security anymore right. that, we had, that they had before. So you'll hear a lot of what's the impact on families, what's the impact on overall, the fact that you don't have the social uh, safety net that they had before. And right. so I think there is a lot of uncertainty in the next few years with that. Yeah, and that brings up a great question of what these companies are going to look like, especially if autonomous becomes as important as a lot of people believe it will be, that that these are companies that are already looking at investments and partnerships with the big three automakers, with other tech companies already. So all of these workers in the gig economy may or may not be working in these jobs five, ten years down the road to begin with. Right. Now, uh, to, just to, to – in my opinion, what we'll see is that this we will lev- – level five driving cars, which is absolutely autonomous, no one on the wheel, that's probably many years out. So right. we will need someone there. But the driver might be a very different driver than what you have now. And the set of skills they will need will be vastly different. So imagine going into a taxi cab and rather than having a driver that the main skill is the ability to get you to where you are, he's actually someone that is a concierge, that knows the city well, that can advise you where to go, that can give you good – I mean, can give you comments on on how to prepare for your next meeting. So the set of skills are going to change. I think a car without a person in it, we're still many years away from that. Okay, so let's dig into the research for a second here because in talking with the drivers themselves, and and obviously part of this are the decisions that these drivers are making in terms of, as I said at the top, when to work, how much to work. Uh, one of the things I found interesting, which we discussed uh, before we went on the air for here for a second, is the fact that there are drivers who feel like they want to get a certain level of compensation, hit that plateau, and then they're done for the day or they're done for the week or the month or whatever it is. And that's a decision f- uh, that, that these drivers are actively making out there. Right. So l- let me maybe talk a little bit about the method because, I mean, we spoke with drivers to be able to get develop our hypothesis, but ultimately it was data-driven. Right. What we had, we had around 8,000 drivers that we followed. When I say followed, we know exactly every decision they made for the last year. Right. And we saw how they make decisions when they were offered more money, when they were offered less money, when they offered in the morning, when they offered in the afternoon. And what we've seen is, is an interesting behavior. We saw, in fact, first of all, that the more money you offer them, the more likely they are going to work, which might be surprising to some people, but essentially is not that surprising. 
But the interesting phenomena is exactly what you're referring to, Dan, which is we saw a very strong income targeting effect. Right. When I say income targeting, it's exactly what you're referring to, which is when they get closer to a certain income, we see a surprising outcome, which is actually you pay them more and they're less likely to come and work. They're, and if they start working in a shift, they are going to work fewer hours. Right. Which is, I think, something that was observed before, but we did manage to reconcile here and, and really make sure that we've seen it across drivers, across types, and in a very robust way. But it, it sounds like it's a little bit of, of the concept of when you have that guaranteed money, you you are, in some cases, you're not willing to work as hard as maybe you would if you if you know that if you work longer hours, you're going to be able to make more money. Right. And so we saw two, one more behavior that was interesting. So again, we saw that Generally speaking, the more you pay people, the more they're going to work and the longer they're going to work. Right. Um, but we did see another effect, which was the, the, what we call inertia, which is the longer people worked, the more likely they are to continue to work and the longer they worked. Right. Now, the, the reason we see also, I, I should I go back to the income uh, effect. The, the reality is that for many of these drivers, they're trying to balance leisure, they're trying to balance family life, they're right. trying to balance. And it's true that in the past, you paid them a lump sum and they worked and, and they sort of you know, gave their best effort. Now the risk, in fact, is that if you're going to pay them more, these people are going to give up. We know already that there's quite a bit of research that gig economy workers, their family lives are usually deteriorating very quickly. Right. What we're seeing here is that there are internal mechanisms, so to speak, that are trying to prevent them from doing that. There are this notion of within whether it's within a day, within a week, or within a month, once they reach a certain level, the, the strong financial incentives become weaker. And I think I, I overall find it as, as a fairly optimistic view of that rather than the right. fact that people don't react to that. Right. What are some of the other things that, that, that these drivers are considering when they are out there on the roads? I mean, we mentioned time obviously being one factor and money being the other. What are the other things that they are, that they are really considering out there? Yeah, it, it, one thing that seems to be fairly consistent is that People want to be uh, working in times where they can actually drive rather than stand in traffic. Sure. So people want to be feeling that they're moving forward, that they're actually working is being uh, rewarded. They hate waiting. So anytime there is waiting, they hate that. And, and I think to some extent, the reason I want to go back to the inertia that we see, which is the fact that the more they work for a specific firm, the more likely they're going to continue and work for that. Right. And the way I explain that, at least for now, is by trying to find more consistent revenue streams. And and if you think about one of being a, a gig economy worker means that you're fairly entrepreneurial. You, mm -hmm. you need to drive where you think you're going to find more work. You're going to switch between platforms. And we know people do what we call multi-homing. They switch between platforms. Sure. Yeah. But at the same time, we do see that attempt to try to streamline and to try to create a more consistent a vision of where things are going. So we, even though there, there, are, there are many of them and, and they behave in, in very different ways, we see that as a very, very consistent behavior. Gad Alon is uh, with the Wharton School, Professor of Operations, Information and Decisions, also Director of the Management and Technology Program here at Wharton. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. You mentioned the financial numbers probably out, but you know what kind of impact it's going to have by about 2025. I found it interesting in the in the research that you did that you say that you believe that we are going to have a majority of our workforce in the gig economy 
by 2025. So we're only, you know, five and a half, six years away from that. Right. So, so these are not our projections, but these are projections that people tend to agree about. And, yeah. and the reason for that is that as we're going to see more and more automation, we're going to see more and more people moving to places where what we call the last mile is going to be important. Yeah. So yeah. touching the customer. Now, you might not do – so we're going to see fewer and fewer jobs that are going to be nine to five or going to the plant. We're going to see more and more jobs that are going to be maybe work a shift, and then you have a shift to do whatever you want. Right. Um, we'll see also more pressure on income, which means that we'll see more and more people. In fact, it was interesting for us to learn that a significant number of the people that work for the gig economy have not started that because of a necessity. So they started that by supplementing their income. Yeah. They're doing one more shift, trying to pay for their vacation. And over time, we aligned that actually they enjoy that, enjoy the flexibility they come with that more than what they had before. And so we're going to see more and more of that fragmentation moving forward as we see, because ultimately manufacturing, you can shift, but services, and many of these are services, right. much harder to trade. And so we'll see much more of that becoming local, more of that becoming around gig economy workers. You mentioned now the, the research you did, you did with a ride sharing company. Right. But I, are, are some of these decision processes the same for people that are working in other aspects of the gig economy right now? Yes. So it, it was interesting. Most of the people that we have work around 75% of their time. They work for that specific ride sharing firm. Right. But the rest of the time, they work for other ride sharing firms or other delivery firms. We see even in retail more and more. And, and we believe that it's a good question because fundamentally we took and modeled how a an employee is making a decision. And we believe that there was really nothing in that modeling that was specific for that firm. Right. And so we see, I mean, Ikea bought TaskRabbit to help them build their uh, furniture. Yeah. Amazon is doing more of that gig economy. If you buy a, a, a furniture that needs assembly, Amazon is going to bring you something to assemble that. That's yeah. going to be a gig economy worker. That's not going to be an Amazon employee. Right. So the same person might be driving in the morning for a ride-sharing firm. And when, when it's lull time, he's going now to assemble a, a table tennis. A, I mean, so, so we see a lot of that. I mean, this, it's the same group of people shifting between that. Again, we go back. It's flexibility is great. Right. It has many challenges with it. How, how then is that going to be really impacting the bottom line for a lot of these companies that either are, are fully vested in the gig economy, like the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, or the ones, as you mentioned, where it may be a retailer, but it has a component of gig economy tied to it to be able to take care of that last mile? So I think the, the, the main issue for all of these is that there is a very tough competition on these employees. Right? The fact that the employees can switch very quickly from one firm to another creates a challenge where, on one side, you need to lure customers, like Amazon, you need, but then you need now to bring the employees. So it's right. a double-sided competition. And in fact, most of the competition now, it's not so much on the customer. It's much more on the employee. Now, the reality is that you need the more employees you bring, so the more drivers you have on the road, the, the faster your response time, which means more customers. Right. The more customers you bring, the more employees you bring. So it's a chicken and egg kind of problem. Right. But we know that the main challenge is sitting and bringing more drivers or, or more employees. But the, the, the gig economy companies benefit, I guess, from the perspective that the, the workers are technically freelance. Right. And, and I say that because I'm sure that when you think about ride-sharing companies, uh, there are times where there are probably more drivers out in a particular city than you really need. Yes. And there are also times where there are fewer drivers than, than you probably actually need. And that goes to something you said before, is that you have drivers that are will actually work for both Uber and Lyft. And if they aren't 
having a successful night with Uber, they may be able to switch and, and kind of earn their money through Lyft as well. Right. And then, so that's kind of exactly one of their main challenges. They, it's not just having enough employees. It's having the right number of employees. It's have, and, and you'll hear from them when you speak with people at the ride-sharing firm, if they have too many drivers waiting and doing nothing, they actually they penalize themselves for doing that, or, or at least they, 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 they feel that is what they're doing. They get this utility from the drivers because right. the driver is disappointed. Many times they have to pay them through subsidies, and the long term is burning cash. Right. At the same time, if you don't have enough drivers, you're losing money by virtue of having customers wait. They prefer having customers wait currently than having drivers wait. Drivers wait, generally speaking, is more hurtful for their bottom line. Because that shows the, the, the need to have the service? Right, exactly. I mean, I think to some extent, because the competition is so cutthroat on the drivers, right. you have to make sure that when a driver is on your platform, they find work. So it sounds like, I mean, th- that these are continually developing businesses because of all of these dynamics, which... When you think of traditional business, a lot of people will say, well, A, B, C, and D are set known factors that you will have coming into the office every day of the week, every day of the year. You have much more unknown in gig economy than you do in, in maybe traditional business. Exactly. And, and you have much more, many more unknowns. Second, you have many more new business models continuously thrown at these firms. Yeah. And, and so when you see now Uber, for example, when Lime... The, the, the scooter firm in San Francisco was introduced. Yeah. They saw a dip in their demand. Yeah. Which, so you, you see many more layers. If you're competing on the last mile, everybody's competing on the last mile. And so every new business model is going to try to take and streamline that and try to take a cut from that. And, and that's what they, where there's a lot of uncertainty in, in these models. Or, or overtake that. Or overtake that, because, because if memory serves me, one of those scooter companies was just acquired, was it not, exactly. I think? Yes, exactly. Yeah. We're joined here in studio by Gad Alon of the Wharton School. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So getting back to the research you did for a second, in terms of the incentives, what incentives really worked so that the company felt good about the overall operation, yet the employees felt good as well. Yeah. So for us, we tested really one type of incentive, which were financial incentives. Yeah. But the key question was, to one of the advantages, not only of the gig economy, but really the, the new era of, of having so much data on every driver, is really realizing who are the right drivers you want to keep and where are the drivers that, in fact, that you prefer that they stay at home for this specific shift. Yeah. And so what we managed to show is that if you really find the right drivers, those that by now, if if you can identify who are the ones that are ready towards their income target, in yeah. which case, offering to bring them actually to drive, you need to have significant effort or significant uh, amount of money to be able to do that. And so what our effort was, or at least what we managed to show, is that if you identify and categorize drivers properly, you can bring the right number of drivers with 30% less uh, incentive, for example. Or if yeah. you use the same incentive, you can target them in a much higher precision. But it really drives, goes down to really understanding what, for each and every driver, what are their financial incentives. So how much are these companies really looking at every one of the drivers? And obviously there's rating systems that are involved yeah. that, the, that the, uh, the person that is being picked up will, will provide a rating. But how much are the companies themselves looking at the success rate of each one of these drivers so that they can parse out the ones that maybe aren't as good, keep the ones that are better, and incentivize them even more to continue to go on? Continuously. So these are very highly data-driven firms. Yeah. So if you think about machine learning and what we call deep learning, 
I'll just give you an example. When we look at the 7,000 drivers that we had, we had probably 1,000 different incentive schemes that were tried in different times right. using different mechanisms. So these firms are, are very savvy in terms of their use of data. They analyze it well. They, they think about it well. What, what we showed, however, is that if you want to project outside of what you saw, you need to have a fundamental model. But they continuously try to randomize and experiment in finding better incentives. By the way, some of the incentives are about if you work for an hour, you're going to get a raise. If you work for two more hours, if yeah. you show four days in a week, a lot, of, about, a lot here is about creating more consistency for a single driver. Is the understanding of having that model one that's, that's acceptable in this industry right now? Yes, it seems to be. Yes, very much so. Because? Which one? I mean, you... Well, for the company themselves. So is, this, is the model successful in terms of financial incentives? Well, right. Correct. Yeah. It seems to be that that's really their main. So they're also bound a little bit by the type of contractual agreement they're allowed to have with the drivers. Right. right? I mean, I think if, if you talk about the different risks they face, the bigger risk they face is of regulation. Right. Yeah. Right. So like Uber, for example, um, are trying to ensure that they're not considered to be employees. Right. Yep. For that, you have to make sure that the only there is very simple agreement between you and them, which are usually financial and very transactional. So the agreement in the industry of all is that you can randomize, you can try different things, you can guarantee a little bit of a salary of of, of wage offer, but you cannot do anything much more creative than that, because anything more creative than that will bound you. In which case they became an employee. In which case you have to provide for their right. health benefits and other things. Right. So it's really driven by by that. And so a lot of these companies, by being able to take these approaches, are able to do a better job of being able to kind of manage. The, I will say their bottom line, but because they're not really paying them, it's a little bit of a different quotient of their bottom line. But they're able to manage a lot of their costs better because of a lot of this data that's there. Right. But at the same time, it is about bottom line. I want to go to your point. Sure. It is about bottom line. I mean, I yeah. think we know now that Uber, for example, to bring a driver to drive on the road, they need to ensure this driver gets $17 an hour. Through driving, they can get 14 which means that Uber is subsidizing each and every driver for $3 coming from VCs, which means coming essentially from our pension funds. Right. Uh, so it is going and flowing directly to the bottom line. Planning, so they can predict that. It's true. It's, everything is much more predictable, but $3 is a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Is. Especially when you when you factor that out over you know, 10 hours, you know, exactly. a week, you know, that, that ends up being a significant amount of money. And it probably also makes that decision easier for them of whether or not they're going to stay with Uber, go over to Lyft, or work both sides of the fence. Exactly. So I think the drivers are, are very savvy in switching continuously. Most of them have very good understanding of their networks. Um, so I think you see a very, very continuous behavior of trying to sample and see where things are. And yet, seemingly, the companies don't have a problem with drivers working for both companies. Initially, they had. Okay. Initially, they had, and then they realized it's a lost cause. It's a lost cause because any attempt to lock them in most likely would lock them out. Right. So yep. initially, they penalized them in different ways and, and, and until realizing that any that, that's, a, a, I mean, not a valuable war over time. Right. What I mean, doing this research, is there a next step in the process that you would like to take this? I mean, obviously, this is very interesting because of how important the gig economy is right now. And as you mentioned before, we're going to have more and more people working in the gig economy in the next several years. Right. And so there are two areas that already I think you, we mentioned here. One of them is going back to this notion of inertia. 
we really want to understand what drives this inertia because this inertia may have significant impact on other areas and primarily because we think that there is something unique about the firm that we work with that may actually is creating that and is creating opportunities for firms to how to engage with their customers right. and with, with their drivers so we think that a there is a fundamental question lurking there of what drives that second the We think that it may create opportunities for not just financial agreements, but creating mechanisms around creating friction yeah. or reducing friction that may allow over time firms to create more interesting models of how to ensure that they have consistent service. Because I mean if one thing that's very fundamental here and we have to be clear I think about as customer, we're generally winning. Yeah. Right? We have better service than yeah. ever. Yeah. If you want to get the cab from wherever you want to wherever you want, within a few minutes there is someone there. Yeah. So overall, we are better off. The only question is that sustainable. To make it more sustainable, we need to find more novel models to keep these drivers driving, but also do it more responsibly. But going back to something you were saying before is the fact that the recognition that the consumer understands, that the business knows that that final mile is an incredibly important piece of To this whole operation certainly the consumer is going to feel like well you know I can pick and choose whoever I want if I want to go get a TV from Best Buy I if, if they don't give me the right service I can take it back and go someplace else and get it and, and get the service of them putting the TV up on my wall and then that's the challenge with, with all of that if I most of the new economy we see whether it's uber whether it's Amazon whether it's Facebook whether it's Google we get better service cheaper than ever. The implication the question are long-term implications and, yeah, and, right. and that's kind of what we are trying to understand here what are the long-term implication of that on welfare of employees and, and that was going to be part of my last question to you is the fact that when you have that mindset I guess the question is do you think that that is a concept that will be able to continue out 30 40 50 years because of that last mile connection and the consumer's ability to switch if they really want to and So Jeff Bezos has an interest, interesting statement saying that customer always takes the current service level as given and, and is never content with whatever you offer them. Sure, yeah. And, and I think that's going to drive. So if, if you currently can have a driver in five minutes, next year it's going to be I want at least a minute. Yeah. After that, I want it to be before I even think about it, I want it to stop here. Sure. So that's going to drive even more, more innovation, more cost to try to satisfy that and more competition in, in trying to find interesting models around it. Great seeing you again. Excellent work. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Great to be here. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.